0: Good morning. Let's pray as we continue in God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Gospel of John. Thank you for the last 12 chapters. Thank you for this one, in which the hour comes. We ask, please, as we see Jesus, as we hear him once again, we ask, please, this morning that you would teach us to believe in him, And that you would give us the boldness to confess our faith in the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Now John chapter 12 is what we are up to. Keep your Bibles open. Page 1044 is where we're going to start. John chapter 12 and verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all of these signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Even after he'd done all of these signs, they still would not believe in him. Behind unbelief is the spiritual reality of God's sovereign action and God's sovereign choice. We've seen it in the last three chapters. If you remember, we had the blind who needed to be healed in order that they might see Jesus. We had the sheep who had to be chosen in order that they may recognise the voice of the shepherd. We had the dead last week who needed to be given life, that they may be raised to eternity. Behind unbelief lies the spiritual reality of God's sovereign action. And here it is again. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, for I would heal them. There is the divine reality that God chooses. And yet it is no real surprise that Israel rejected Jesus. It's no real surprise that people today fail to believe in him. Now Isaiah, who is quoted for us here, saw the glory, we're told in verse 41, of Jesus. And yet these passages, which I'm sure you're very familiar with because we covered Isaiah in first term, and if you weren't here for it, you can go back and listen to the sermons on the website, Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 53 are what are being quoted here. In Isaiah chapter 6, which is that second quote in verse 40, Isaiah sees a vision of the glory of God. He's transported into the throne room. You can imagine God with all of his heavenly creatures. And Isaiah sees God and he falls flat on his face and he says, oh, that, That's it, I'm done. Woe is me, I'm dead. I'm a man of unclean lips and I have beheld the Lord. He sees a vision of the divine glory, which John tells us is a vision of Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, the divine glory. Is it any wonder that Israel rejected him? Every time, what happened every time that they looked at Jesus and they thought that he was maybe associating himself with God? What did they do every time? Blasphemer, stone him to death. Right? They, they couldn't handle the divine glory. Or Isaiah 53, that first quote. Uh, in fact, let me, let me read it, the, the first part of Isaiah 53 for you. Very famous passage. usually comes out at Christmas time, but here it is, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, that's what's quoted in John 12. Listen to this description of Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Is it any wonder that Israel failed to believe, that people today continue in unbelief, for they cannot see the divine glory of Jesus and they can't handle his lowly humanity. It is no surprise because Jesus at every point defies, in fact he is the very opposite of everything that we expect. That's what we're going to see in John chapter 12. Jesus who is the opposite of human expectation. Now I'm going to read through the chapter again, make some comments as we go. So again, keep your Bible open at John 12. Make sure that what I'm saying really is coming from here. And if you're a note taker, by all means inside the bulletin, you'll find an outline. Firstly, Jesus demands of his followers the very opposite of religious piety. Jesus demands the opposite of religious piety. Let me set the context for you. If you remember last week, if you were here, Jesus raised Lazarus back to life again. The crowd goes nuts, expectedly. However, the pressure starts to be put on him. The Jewish leaders decide, that's it, that's enough, we're going to kill this bloke. It's better that one guy die than that the whole nation be destroyed by the Romans. And so chapter 11, verse 54, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim. Self-imposed exile. He's off in the bush somewhere, clear of all the crowds, And this is what the chief priests do, verse 57, they'd given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it, that he might be arrested. There's a warrant out for Jesus. See him, bring him to us. And so he's off in exile, he's off in the desert. And how does the verse begin? Six days before the Passover in chapter 12, Jesus arrived at Bethany. Now we just left Bethany last chapter in chapter 11 and we know it's close to Jerusalem, right? They arrive at Bethany. The Jews have put out a warrant for his arrest. People from Jerusalem are surely going to dob him in if they see him. And that's where we pick up the story. We're expecting big things to happen. Now as I read through the first section, notice the difference between Mary and Judas. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Let's just be clear, he's there. Very interesting guy. A dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Right, they're all there, all the characters are there. Mazarus, <laughs> Mazarus, Martha, Lazarus, Mary, they're all there. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, this one who was later to betray him, he objected. Well, hang, hang on, why, why wasn't this perfume sold? Why wasn't the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. This keeper of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor, but you won't always have me. I want to focus on those two characters for a moment. Let's focus on Judas first. Now, I feel for poor Judas. I really do. He loved money. And he loved money so much that he says of this act of worship, oh, no, that shouldn't have happened. Let's sell it. Give the money to the poor. Now, as it turns out, that's because he was a thief and he loved sticking his hand in and taking out what he wanted. But he loved money so much that in just a few short chapters he would sell Jesus. for Just a measly amount of money. But if you put aside for a moment the thievery, if you put aside for a moment the love of money, isn't he right? Why are you wasting this perfume? You could have sold it for a year's wages. Imagine the amount of poor people you could feed with that money. House them. It's freezing cold right now, right? Let's buy blankets for them. Turn the church into a dorm and they can sleep here at night. Makes the sermons a lot more comfortable too. We can lie in beds, right? I mean, you isn't he right? Isn't that what Christianity is about? Religious piety? Isn't that what Christians are supposed to be doing? Good works. Jesus was the one who said, sell all you have, give it to the poor, right? Isn't Judas what is expected of us? That we too might live in good deeds? And yet it is Mary who's commended. Mary who sees the worth of Jesus and honours it. She loves her Lord. She rejoices. I mean, she's got her brother back. That's brilliant. But she knows who is the life, and she pours herself out before him. A pint of pure nard an expensive perfume, and pours it on Jesus' feet. I got curious. What's the most expensive perfume in the world? Anyone, anyone know? I'd be impressed if you did, but... Yeah, Joe knows. He was here at eight o'clock. That's cheating. I found this one. Clive Christian, number one Imperial Majesty perfume. That little bottle sets you back two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. Right? That's that's not bad. Husbands, right? You come home with one of them, right? And you'll be in real trouble. Uh, some some sort of fat diamond on the top and white gold collar, right? Now this is I. I, I Consider this one the most expensive one ever made, because it was it was a production run. There were ten of them made, right? Now there is one more expensive though. This one was made as a one off, DK and Y, Golden Delicious. It's a million bucks. How's that for you, right? A million bucks. Now, it's kind of cheating because the bottle, if you can tell, it's got diamonds all around it. In fact, on the lid, that's the New York skyline made out in diamonds, right? So so the real cost isn't the perfume so much, but This stuff was expensive. She, you are? She owns it. We're going to her place to check it out. That's cool. Smell it. Whoops, fell. Um, now this stuff wasn't quite that expensive, right? I mean, this is a, a year's wages, minimum wage in Australia, 35 grand, right, somewhere around about there, a little bottle. So I went looking for something that's, that's comparable, right? This one by, uh, by Parfumes Cajon, if you'll excuse the French, which I don't speak, right? Cajon or whatever, however you say this one. $1,000 an ounce, so that little bottle, somewhere around 50 grand maybe. Uh, again, right, gold and all the rest of it. And I love, I love the descriptions of these perfumes. So there are people who sniff perfume, kind of like taste wine and tell you what it, what it smells like, right? And this one's pretty cool. I mean, they've got the blurb about it, blah, 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 right? Made in 1904, released in 1954, took 50 years, blah, 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 our best ever. But then you get to the description of it. This is the bit I love. The aroma has insights of clove. And a mixed bag of flavors, including dark and red pepper. Pauvoir has an exceptionally fiery and red hot aroma. <laughs> are you supposed to put it on or cook with it? What are you supposed to. Like, my, my Mexican's not hot. up. <laughs> that is what Mary takes and pours on Jesus' feet. And there's really no way of describing her next action other than humbling. Here is a woman who prostrates herself before her Lord and wipes His hair feet with her hair. There's no way of doing that in a proud kind of way. When you're going to wipe someone's feet with your hair, especially when your hair's this short, right? You kind of got to, you got to give it a few of these ones, right? She sees the worth of Jesus, and she bows before. Jesus demands the opposite of religious piety. He wants all of your life poured out before Him. Why is it that people don't believe? Why is it that humanly speaking there is unbelief? Because let's be honest, we want somebody who comes and tells us what to do, who comes and demands of us religious piety because we want to work our own way there. And Jesus says, you can do nothing. Know my worth and pour yourself out before me. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. In fact, leave her alone because Mary is doing more than she even realises. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. She doesn't even realise what she's doing, but she's anointing me. Now it's kind of a weird anointing. Usually you do the body after it's dead, and yet here is Jesus being anointed for what is to come. Now the crowds are kind of getting a bit hyped up. All right, verse 9, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there. That's warning bells. Are they going to hand him over? But they want to come and see not only him but Lazarus. He's an interesting guy. Did you really die? You're back alive? What happened? What did you see? Was there a tunnel at the end of the light at the end of the tunnel? Right. What was it? And such is the crowd's acclaim of Lazarus that the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many were going, over to see Jesus. Isn't that crazy? It just, I mean, to kill Jesus is understandable, at least from their end. He's a blasphemer. He's been claiming to be God. They miss the fact that he is God, but fair enough. There's law in the Old Testament, kill the blasphemer. I get that. And yet now they're thinking we've got to kill Lazarus as well. Poor Lazarus. What's he done? The poor boy, he just got sick and died had the misfortune of being friends with Jesus. Jesus comes along, heals him. He doesn't say a word in the whole story. And yet here in the Pharisees, oh, we're gonna to have to kill him too. How often, once we start down the crooked path, we end up finding ourselves compromised. And Jesus is not what the crowds expect. See, Jesus is the opposite of nationalistic fervor. Jesus wields power, the opposite to what we expect him to wield power. He comes to Jerusalem. The next day, verse 12, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way. Here he comes. Here comes the king. And they meet him. They get palm branches out and they put on a parade. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Hooray! (laughs) Here he comes. The king! Can you believe it's happening in our day? In fact, they think this king is going to set up an eternal kingdom. That this is a king who cannot die. Fair enough. He can raise the dead back to life. Of course, his is just going to keep on going. He's going to kick out the Romans. We are going to rule. And it happens today. Oh, how exciting. It's a strange word, that hosanna. It's a very, very intriguing little word. Anyone know what it means without looking at the footnotes? Okay, so it's an English word, but it's not translated. It's really a Greek word. They just took the Greek word and kind of wrote out the English letters for it, Hosanna. Normally they translate it. They give us English words. So it's, a, it's an English version of a Greek word. But the weird bit is that the Greek guys did the same thing. They just took a Hebrew word and wrote out the Greek letters for it. So really it's an English version of a Greek version of a Hebrew word. How bizarre, right? You knew that. And, uh, and and it's a weird because it's only used, as far as I can tell, once in the whole Old Testament. Isn't that a strange word? It's in Psalm 118. I reckon this one's worth turning back to. So turn back to Psalm 118. Keep your finger in John 12. We're coming back there. Psalm 118, because it's in here. Well, I reckon you missed it. Psalm 118, page 598 in the Pew Bibles. And verse 25. O Lord, Hosanna! Or the Hebrew, Na, or whatever it is. right? O Lord, save us! There it is. There's the word. It is a cry for help. Now, it's a bit unfortunate that they don't, They did translate this one, but not the other one. So we kind of miss it in the English. But, oh Lord, save us. Help me. Deliver us from what is before us. It's the cry of the guy who falls into the pool and can't swim. Right? Hosanna. You try that one, see what happens. Send the lifeguard. Deliver me. Save me. Uh, We went whitewater rafting in the mid-90s. We'll, we'll get to why this matters. We're well, whitewater rafting. We were there for a university students' conference, and as you do when you've traveled somewhere, you might as well stay and have a holiday. right This was in Chile uh, it was a cool, cool kind of place. you can imagine with the Andes climbing down. there were some pretty fantastic whitewater rapids um, i got I got the best seat on the boat that's not really a photo of me, but it looks much like what we would have looked like and I got the best seat. I got the one at the front, the guy who doesn't have to paddle and just gets the woo the ride okay that was that was me. Now there were two groups of us. That, there was a big group that went, such so that we had to go on two boats. And I heard the story later of what happened on one of the other boats. They were paddling along, and they got to this section of the of the river that was just no rapids, right? So it's just a, a kind of a plain, still, fairly still, still fast-flowing water. And the guy did, of course, as I'm sure he did every trip, and he just picked one of the cute girls and pushed her in. Because that's what you do, right? We're all going to have a laugh and and have a bit of a swim and and a joke and all the rest of it. Unfortunately for him, unbeknownst to him, he picked the one girl on the boat, Elizabeth, who couldn't swim. Hosanna, she cried out. Not not really, but save me, deliver me, rescue me from what is in front of me. The people of Israel saw Jesus entering in. Hosanna, the king has come, save us. But it's also very interesting what happens next in Psalm 118. Because you get Psalm 118 verse 25, O Lord, save us. And the very next verse 26, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Hosanna moved from just meaning save me to meaning hooray, the Saviour comes. It's not just save me, I'm drowning, but it's hooray, he comes the Saviour. On our boat when we were at whitewater rafting, we had a slightly more serious incident. Uh, We were coming down this section of rapids and ahead you could see a bend in the river. Now, bends are very dangerous because the water can flow at different speeds as you turn the corner. And as we're coming down towards it, we hit this big rock and kind of went up sideways and back down and one of the people fell in. Again, very dangerous. If we'd gotten to the corner and started turning, we would have gone fast, he would have been left and he's gone. Now, the tour guide, thankfully, was clearly a very experienced man. He just threw down his paddle, locked his foot down in the channel that runs the length of the boat, reached out, grabbed his, his, uh, his life jacket and just pulled him straight back in. And you can imagine that guy crying out, Hosanna, my Saviour is here to deliver, to rescue. The crowds in John 12 saw Jesus entering in. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is our King, our Saviour. Now Jesus found a young donkey, as the king would, and wrote in on that. Don't be afraid, O daughter of Zion. So your King is coming. So remember, Jesus is the opposite. He's so different to what we expect. Here comes the mighty war King. Riding on a donkey. Now, I want that picture to be the picture that sticks in your head. Because to me, that symbolizes, like nothing else, the difference between what the crowds expected, what we expect of Jesus, and what he comes to do. Now, Zechariah 9, where this is taken from, is a prophecy of the king. And yet, the king who comes is lowly and gentle. Jesus doesn't come to fulfil their nationalistic ideals of the new kingdom of Israel. No, he has other, much greater plans in mind. The hype keeps building. The crowd is just going nuts. Verse 17, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus, they're spreading the word. Many people, because they heard he's given this sign, went out to meet him. Such is the hype that the Pharisees have to say, this is insane. It's getting us nowhere. We had a good plan of getting someone else to bring him to us, but the whole world is going to him. Poor, poor Pharisees. They just don't get it time and again, right? Let's go and kill the guy who's immortal. <laughs> the nations are going to him. Well, that's what's supposed to happen to the king. No, let's just ignore that. And among those who go were some Greeks. They come, they want to see Jesus. They come to one of his disciples, Philip. Philip goes, finds Andrew. Together they go, find Jesus. The Greeks have come. And for some reason, I I don't quite know why it is, but for some reason this triggers the greatest thing that is going to come. Friends, Jesus is the opposite of nationalistic fervour. He's the opposite of human uses of power because he is the opposite of worldly self-serving. He's the opposite of worldly self-serving. What did the king come to do? This, this mighty saviour who they are acclaiming in the streets. What did he come to do? Jesus replied, as this Greek comes, the hour has come. Finally, we've been waiting for it all, gospel. I mean, time and again, right? Jesus, no, my hour's not yet come. Would you please? No, my hour's not yet come. Can we? No, my hour's... It's like, come on, we want to see the glory of the Son of Man. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. What on earth or in heaven is this king going to do? How will he be glorified? I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, there remains only a single seed. What are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? What do you, what do you mean, death? What do you mean, serving and... Humbling yourself. What do you mean my heart is troubled? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? What do you, what do you mean? Who, are you talking about someone else? Is that what you're talking about? You're saying someone else is going to die. I mean, who, who is this son of man that you're talking about? You can't die. You're the king. And yet that is the glory of this king. He came to die. And he calls his followers to follow him through that death. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. If it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Why do people not believe, because the one they follow died, and he calls others to do the same to not use your power and your authority and your wealth to serve yourself, but to use it in service of others now it's a hard thing it's a hard thing do you hate your life such that you may grasp onto eternal life? I mean in a depressed kind of you know, self-identity sort of way? Do you hate this world and all its things that go with it, such that you may serve your Lord and your Master? Do you think of yourself as a slave to Jesus? It's a hard word, but it results in glory. The seed dies and it produces many seeds. The one who hates his life will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves will be where Jesus is. The Father will honour that one. It is hard and yet it comes with glory. The glory of this king comes in his death. Now The crowd can't understand it. Remember the divine glory of Jesus they cannot see and the lowly humanity of him is something that they just will not grasp hold of. And so Jesus hides himself, he does his ninja trick again, hides himself from them and disappears. Even after Jesus had done all these signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. They couldn't grasp the divine glory. They couldn't understand how this lowly one could be the one they wanted. And even those who believe... Even those who saw it enough to think maybe there's something here, even they failed to confess their faith. For in the end, Jesus is the very opposite of us. Notice verse 42. At the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. This is where Jesus is the very opposite of us. Here is the one who would say, Father, glorify your name. And he said that of his own death. Whereas we are so much in love with the people around us and their praise that even those who believed failed to confess their faith. And so with that damning assessment of them, which I fear is a damning assessment of us, Jesus finished his public ministry. These are the last words. And I take it that's why they're timeless. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out. He's, he's just hid himself. He's not specifically in this context. But here is the summary of the last 12 chapters. Here it is. Here is the last call to the crowd to come and taste life. Maybe it's the last call to you. And Jesus says you've got to believe And when you believe, you don't believe in just me, you believe in the one who sent me. I mean, it's like a whirlpool. All of the ideas in John are just coming and coalescing in this last little section. When a man believes in me, he doesn't believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. You look at Jesus, you believe in Jesus. You don't just believe in Jesus, you believe in God. I love it when people say, I believe in God, but I don't really know about this Jesus, God. Well, no. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. If you have seen the light... That the Father sent, you know the Father. The word that Jesus spoke is what brings salvation. That's the word that we still have. That is the word of salvation, Jesus' word. And it is also the word that will condemn. It's a strange idea in many ways. Picture it for a moment. It's the last day, right? We come before the judge's court. Uh, He's he's a judge's court. yeah, yeah, it'll be a little bit less American, I suspect, right, when we get to the heavenly courts and probably a fair bit more regal. But um, anyway, there you go, there's a the court. And you come in, right, and uh, do you swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? Uh, yes, I do, and in this case, I really want, so help me God, right? You're in there, you're in that courtroom. And, uh, and, and who's right, who's wrong? Only one man can decide. Here is the judge, Jesus Christ. And in he walks and he comes up to you and he says, well, you heard the word of salvation. Right, You're condemned. You heard the word that would have saved you. Did you respond? Oh, no. Nah. Like, it was cool, right? I didn't actually need to hold on to that word, did I? That, was that the salvation? Well, if you didn't grasp hold of the salvation, then what remains? Only condemnation. The word that saves is the very word that will condemn on the last day. I know that this command leads to eternal life. And Jesus finished his public ministry. From then on, it was just him and his disciples on the way to the cross. Now I'll draw out three implications from this. Number one, do you believe? Do you believe? You've you've heard the word in the last 12 chapters of John. You have seen the divine glory. You have been exposed to the lowly humanity. You have seen the king who seeks his glory and the glory of the father by dying for those who are his. Do you believe? Let me tell you, it's not enough if you do believe to just hide it in your heart. Oh, yes, yes, I, I, I believe inside in my own little private. Do you confess that faith? Are you bold enough? In fact, do you so love the praise of God that you will stand before any and everyone, no matter the consequences? Being put out of the synagogue was enough to scare them into submission. Jesus demands that we be prepared to be put out of this world. Whose praise do you love more? I was speaking with, uh, with one of the young girls from night churches a couple of weeks ago. New, newish job. Do people know you're a Christian? Not, no, why not? Um, I'm kind of scared what they'll think of me. Now, it will require change. If you were known as somebody who did not believe in Jesus and you come and say, I have faith, I trust in the one, my king died for me, I serve a servant, it will require change. And it may well require people to say to you, well, we don't know you anymore. Whose praise do you love more? Do you believe? Secondly, don't be surprised when they don't believe. When others who we share the gospel to, for many they will say, well, of course Jesus isn't divine. Of course he's not God. How could Jesus possibly be God? Don't be silly. That's blasphemy. They cannot see the divine glory. Or they will say, well, he's a failure. What sort of a guy do you follow whose greatest success was dying? I can manage that. I mean, what are you talking about? You want me to follow this guy who calls on me to give up everything I have and everything I have for the sake of other people? What? Don't be surprised when they don't believe, for it is humanly impossible. And yet, that is what we must preach. Christ and Christ crucified. The king who dies, the light come into the world to save us out of darkness. Thirdly, what sort of follower are you? I hope and pray that you're not a Judas. That you love money so much that you'd hand Jesus over. I I hope and pray that's not you. But even aside from the whole being a thief and loving money bit, I hope and pray that you're not the sort of person who thinks that religious piety is where it's at. Don't get me wrong. By all means care for the poor. Don't get me wrong, by all means come to church and take communion and do the things that are part of church life but don't think that that is what it's about. The sort of follower who because I've come to church and I've taken communion, I've done this and I've done that and I've given my money and I've done alms and I've done my good deeds therefore I'm okay. Please don't be that sort of follower. Are you like the crowds and you're expecting Jesus to fix the problems of now? Hey, here he comes, the king, right? He's going to install us as his people. We're going to rule. I mean, uh, there's probably not many of us thinking that. Right? We're about to have a new kingdom created, uh, the land of, of Fredonia, right? And Jesus is going to be the king and we're going to be there with him and we're going to reign and rule and we're going to... I mean, that's a bit out there, right? That's, that's not really us. But our temptation is to seek Jesus as the King who fixes my life now. Not a political kingdom, but perhaps a financial kingdom. Jesus who's gonna set me up so that I can be wealthy and wise and healthy and do all the good things that I want to do. And that's the sort of king Jesus is. Or are you a follower like Mary? You know Jesus' worth. You know his worth. And your heart is full of wonder and thankfulness and joy and love that overflows in lavish demonstrations of affection. It's really not us, is it? Us, us Aussies, I mean, not, not all of us are Aussie kind of British background, but British people, we're, we're a lot like that. We Lavish demonstrations of affection? I might give you a hug, but that's on Christmas, right? I mean, that's... Is your heart so full of wonder? So full of thankfulness and joy and love for the king who died in your place, that that is what overflows. Last call to the crowd. Do you believe? Will you accept the word that saves, or will it be the word that condemns before the judge? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for John 12. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Hosanna, the Saviour, who came not to set up a new reign on earth, but as the hour came, turned his face towards the cross to be glorified in death. Father, thank you for the forgiveness we have in him for sin dealt with, for salvation into eternity purchased. Teach us to believe and give us please the boldness to confess that faith. And Father, we ask that you would teach us to be followers who worship with all that we are and all that we have. Father, teach us to love the praise that comes from you always more than the praise that comes from men. Amen.